Hello, and welcome to a bonus episode of Rationality. We're without our full complement today, as Guy is currently unavailable due to some examinations at university. So Deepak and I are going to have a go at tackling the main stories of the week without him. So we're without Guy this week, uh, but it's me and Deepak here just... uh, thought we'd have a chat because obviously we've had an election and quite a lot's gone on um in government over the last couple of weeks so before we get into any of that Deepak what have you been up to since we last spoke yeah just um this week was the last week of um official sessions at the university in terms of teaching for our course um so had our last emotional lesson today of the of the year um before the students go from long summer if everything goes to plan um yeah apart from that it's been it's been quite quiet just tying up some loose ends for the year and everything how about yourself well not too much not too much so um busy obviously flogging energy to businesses up and down the country (laughs) but um apart from that i have had such a boring life i've just been waiting to uh get back on the microphone with you guys sadly no guy this week because as you've referenced it's the end of the uh end of the academic year and he's sitting some exams so I'm sure we're both wishing him some good <laughs> luck uh, in his quest to become a, a, a leader of the free world um, <laughs> stopping off at sort of the legal profession um, but okay uh, yeah let's let's get on with the podcast so yesterday the nation uh, we can get on to that in a moment in terms of turnout but the nation took to the polls Uh, to elect a series of positions, whether it be police and crime commissioners, local mayors, um, sort of city mayors, and and obviously the the big ticket item of the day, which was the Hartlepool by-election. Thoughts, Deepak? Yeah, I mean, it's been a bit of a... I mean, I I don't think I've responded to it with as much shock and surprise as the media have portrayed it to be. Um especially with examples such as Hartlepool or Dudley, which is closer to where I live. Um, just a reflection of the older, I don't know what we call the traditional working class, if that still exists, sort of drifting away from the Labour Party. Um, certain demo, um, sort of demographic characteristics of places, of Hartlepool having uh, more of a slightly older demographic in terms of its population. Um, sort of relatively low turnout, which we spoke about before, around forty-two percent. Um, yeah, seems which is, low, which is pretty what's, low. What's typical then? It's usually sort of two thirds, isn't it? About yeah, you would normally say about two thirds. Yeah. So that's yeah, that's okay. really low. Um, and then, well, unfortunately for Labour, that low turnout was reflected in their votes really, because if you look at the raw numbers in terms of who was voting for the parties, it was it was the Labour turnout that was a uh, significantly less than before um and on top of that we've you know kind of discussed it before i think people just had a lot of reasons uh, not to sort of support starmer in his first outing if you want to say that you know all sorts of reasons whether it's his view on brexit or the fact he took the knee his treatment of you know jeremy corbyn or the, the, the hard left or whatever um yeah. it all came to the fore really um and it was a bit of a disaster for them. But like I said, I don't think it's as much of a disaster as the media is probably making out. But it's not good anyway. Yeah, well, um, absolutely. I mean, loads loads to sort of 
go over there. I mean, starting with the um, the hard left then, which is almost um, where you finished. I we uh, spoke earlier in preparation for for the uh, for the recording, and and um, I, m- I mentioned my dismay at hearing uh, Diane Abbott's response to the Hartlepool by-election. Now, uh, Diane Abbott is someone I am, as I said while we were speaking, I'm loath to criticise because of the awful abuse she is subjected to. Uh, However, um, her initial reaction to the loss of the Hartlepool by-election was effectively, and I'm paraphrasing her here, but... um, you know, she spent a lot more talking about time talking about Jeremy Corbyn, mm. for instance, than I think any of the uh, voting public would have mm. done. Um, effectively, saying that um, Keir Starmer removing the the whip from Jeremy Corbyn is is a major contributing factor to that mm. by election loss. Sure. Now, my reaction was that that is utter nonsense. Mm. Um, mm. What do you think? I mean. I, I agree with you. Um, I think it may have had a small role to play, but I, I don't think this has panned out the way it has because of that. I, I, I don't think so. Um, if, you know, if you were to just use the example of Hartlepool, I mean, obviously that's the key by-election we're talking about. Um, just look at the way the, the, the votes were split in 2019 for the Hartlepool result. It was, the vote share was 37% Labour, um, and then it was 28% conservative and 25% Brexit party so if you kind of I mean if you just if someone just showed me that screenshot which I've had for a few days now and just said where do you Mm -hmm. think this is gonna go it would have gone exactly the way it's gone genuinely because where are those Brexit votes going to go they're going to go to the to the uh, conservatives it's as simple as that um that combined with a low turnout I mean the role that the hard left not finding a home in Starmer's Labour Party has with that i'm not so sure whether that combines with his approach to brexit and the things that he's done sort of taking the knee and so forth and maybe as a combination of events yeah but in isolation i think that's such a small thing and at the same time it's a small thing which i don't know what the solution is for i don't know what the solution is for that what what do the people who see themselves that way as no longer represented by the labor party what is their what is the outcome that they're looking for I can't answer that question right now because I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, I I used to have this sort of theory about the uh, about, about the Conservative Party and the um, what we you know what we have referred to as the traditional working class vote, and I thought that um, the Conservative Party vote has almost turned a little bit into like a Coots bank account. <laughs> in that you've got you've got a nice shiny card yeah. um but effectively it does what a bank should do um mm. you know but you 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 pay a little extra for the privilege mm. and it strikes me that um the erosion of what was the traditional working class mm. into what is now for my money the bottom 98% mm. of mm. society which is all of us mm. um you know who consider ourselves to be of one class and then there's the super wealthy. Mm. Um, And I think that ultimately, if the Labour Party is trying to appeal to that outdated view of the working class, whereas the traditional working class doesn't see itself as working Mm. class anymore, then effectively Labour is 
shouting into the void at no one. Mm. Um, and and I think that what what you're finding, you you reference the Black Lives Matter, for instance, mm. but also um, all sorts of other equality issues that Labour has taken a stance on over the last couple of years. Mm. Um, it it's left out the white working class or the traditional mm. white working class, and and. Um, you know, equality, it's a really general thing. Or do you think they just haven't made it obvious enough that they care about the white working class? Well, I'd, I'd, exactly. Because I, I think we, you know, you'd be hard pressed to find too many people who will overtly say, I don't want equality. Mm, mm. Um, and uh, Black Lives Matter is a movement which, uh, above all else, is striving for equality. Mm. Um, you know, feminist movements, uh, the Me Too movement, mm. um, above all else, striving for equality. Not yeah. superior status, equality. Yeah. Um, you know, whether you're looking at LGBTQ plus, um, yeah. you know, movement, it's it's equality, yeah. again, treat equal treatment. And, um, you know, the white lives or all lives matter yeah. idea, for me, it's it's not necessarily, or at least I, I didn't view it this way at the time, but with the benefit of, yeah. sort of having processed yeah. it, um, I was probably guilty as anyone of, of, of considering it just to be a racist position to hold. Yeah. Um, and whilst it may be slightly ignorant, I don't necessarily think it comes from that same place. I think that um, it, effectively there is a large proportion of society which has been underrepresented by all government. Yeah. Um, and, and because it hasn't been specifically referenced in any of these hugely um, emotive movements... Um, we're finding ourselves in a position where we've got a huge number of people who feel thoroughly underrepresented. Mm. Um, and the the only bit that... So so I'm not surprised by the result, but um, a lot of the sort of vox pops coming out of the... Uh, uh, you know, in the aftermath and, and also pre-recorded from the build-up to the mm. Hartlepool by-election, a lot of people voting on the basis that they want change. <laughs> Um, and and that's the thing. That's the thing that I think that um, the Conservative Party has done very well to position yeah. itself yeah. as the party for change, despite being having been yeah. in charge for eleven years. Um, you know, f for me, the 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 person who's <laughs> directed that um, that communication campaign either needs a pay rise or or they need arresting <laughs> because something's, something's gone on. Yeah, something's gone um, on. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, what 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 do you think about that? I mean, in terms of my hypothesizing about um, uh, about the sort of perhaps lack of appeal that a Labour movement would have I mean, on the basis of that. I think the really important point you make is your reference to the Tory party just managing to find a way to control the narrative. Um, okay. And obviously a big part of that is the role the media plays in it. I mean, for them to deliver this message that it's sort of time for a change and all that stuff when they've been the party in power for like the last 11 years, you know, 200,000 like nurses quitting the NHS in that time, there's cuts to all sorts of public services, and yet still they can get away with the message of it's time for a change and we're the people who can do that. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably more reflective on the fact that people just aren't as politically engaged as we might think. Because if you think about it, like Hector, me and you, we sort of, we, 
you know, we go about our daily lives, but if you think about how engaged we are with politics, we're kind of in a bit of a bubble, aren't we? Most people aren't <laughs> like us, are they? Uh, and yeah. I mean that in the nicest way possible. I'm the um, only person I know in my regular life who watches PMQs. Yeah, exactly. So this <laughs> I mean, is what I mean. I, I get home and I, I play it. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what I mean. This is exactly what I mean. Yeah. I, I, I said it, we had a WhatsApp conversation about it this morning, and I was saying people who listen to us, to this podcast, or include, and including ourselves who contribute to it, we're we're not like ninety plus percent of the, of the public who just mm-hmm. aren't engaged politically, um, and what works for people who aren't engaged politically are the things that the Tory Party are very good at. They're very good at controlling the message, controlling the narrative, using sort of three word slogans. You know, they famously, I think David Cameron introduced the nudge unit, didn't he, about using sort of um subliminal messaging and behavioural techniques in the messages they send or the colour schemes they use and the type of text, the font and what times of day it goes out. They spent a lot of money on that nudge unit to um, <clears throat> push. They call it a nudge unit because they're pushing you to display certain behaviours and have certain opinions. That's what they call the nudge unit. But then I think um, there, there is history of that with, uh, with Blair because he was mm. famously choreographed mm. and, um, you know... Lord Mandelson happily reminded us today. <laughs> You've obviously come across this today mm. as well, but happily reminding us of of, of Labour's election mm. um, recent history, which is effectively lose, 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 Blair, 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 lose, 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 and that takes us back to about the nineteen seventies. Yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, you know, effect, effective. Um, subliminal subtle nuanced um delivery of messaging and as you say body language is clearly clearly working Mm. so powerful stuff so um if guy were here uh (laughs) i imagine uh and and i'm so sorry guy if you're gonna speak for you guy but we'll try our best (laughs) and, and, and you feel misrepresented but if if guy were here he might make the suggestion that um, the result in this uh, Hartlepool by-election is as a result of the British people responding to effective government by uh, Boris Johnson. Um, and actually, this is the the voting public making uh, their support heard uh, in, in terms of the government's handling of the situation <laughs> since 2019, when mm. they last had their chance to mm. sort of make their voices heard. So um, I don't need to be a, a mind reader to suggest you might not believe that <laughs> and you might not agree with that statement. But if uh, if I were to offer that opinion, what would you, um, how, how would you counter it? I would say there's, that, obviously I disagree totally with the effective government side because they've been an absolute disaster um, for the whole period, basically, particularly with the pandemic. Um you know, as well, the fifth highest death toll in the world, is it? I think fourth or fifth? I think fifth of a country of our I size. Think it was fifth. Yeah. Fifth um, of, um, and it's of countries with a population over 20 million. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah um, fifth. It's know, not a strong performance for No, Great it's Britain. not. I mean, we're an island nation with a centralised healthcare system, and we're at that death toll. It's pretty pathetic, whatever way you look at it. Um, yeah, it's pretty damning. <laughs> it is. It really is. Yeah. Um, and That's then at the great. same, you know, we've, you know, we've obviously spoken about uh, the pandemic before. We spoke about the VIP lane and how much, and and we'll talk about it a little bit later. But how much of an impact the sleaze and corruption and the democracy has actually had on the way they've handled the pandemic as well? So we, you know, we we can sit here and say they've done the wrong things, but the actual impact of not supplying the right PPE at the right time is devastating. 
for the people who were supposed to be wearing them. Um, in terms of the pandemic, what I, and the one part of it I would agree with is it's, it's kind of a, this is the vaccine rollout response, isn't it? Um, which has been the one part of this where the NHS were involved um, and they managed to nail rather than a private provider. Um, and obviously people are responding to the, the success of that up until this point. And that's obviously fresh in a lot of people's minds, isn't it? And and it's also mentioned before about sort of getting Brexit done, you know, sort of like, oh, you know, we've got Brexit done. But anyone, you know, you would think if, you know, if you're politically engaged and you're actually keeping up to date with the consequences of the Brexit deal, it's been a disaster. <laughs> like, it's been a mess. Um, 60% of businesses and the recent LSE study said they've been affected by it really bad. The fishing industry is an absolute mess at the moment. Um, people being charged for deal certification on products they can't afford. VAT charges that didn't exist before Brexit. It's been a disaster. So if you're not aware of these things, for you, Brexit is done and that's it. But people who are living with the consequences of this, Brexit isn't done. Um, and it's having an effect on their lives every single day. But, you know, if you can just get the message out that Brexit is done. Um, and a lot of people in Hartlepool actually said that. The voices on the ground said... People say, look, Boris has got Brexit done. The vaccine's been great. We're voting for Boris. He's a nice guy. Full stop. So so that begs the question then. Um, I, I, if, uh, if it were a case, then just to pursue the, uh, or pursue the idea that it were a case that this were a vote of support for the Conservatives, mm. why is there so much... There's, there's almost antipathy towards Labour... Mm. Um, and I, I understand, you know, we're, we're both on the left side of the political divide, mm. divide or, um, you know, and we feel a little antipathy towards Labour, but mm. from a different, for a different reason for, um, you know, effectively not, not brilliant performance on a couple of, uh, mm. elections. Mm. Um, but there is genuine antipathy towards Labour, despite the fact that they not having been necessarily the party that's created the way things are mm. um wh where do you think that antipathy comes from and how do you think that has sort of come about manifest itself and i think we just i mean we discussed a little bit before about the raw numbers behind it and mm. and when we when we're referencing the example of Hartlepool, it seemed like that antipathy that you mentioned was the massive factor in you know the um the tory success there more than the tories themselves uh, because of the raw numbers. I mean, I could give you some examples of some of the numbers now we're talking about. Um, as we said, the, the turnout was 42.7%, remarkably low. But then if you just look at the raw the raw numbers, um, only 22% of the electorate in Hartlepool actually voted for the Tories, um, which is quite low in terms of how it matches up to the percentage of the votes they got um, overall. And also in terms of the the raw numbers, I've got the figures here for that as well. So if you look at 2017, the Tories got 14,000 votes and this time they got 15,000. Um, and that time Labour got 21,000 and this time they got 8,589. So the raw figures, so the people who didn't turn up were essentially, you would say, probably Labour voters who didn't turn up. and that 13,000 of them. Yeah. That links 13, to the antipathy that you're saying. And now the reason why that exists, there's, there's a whole host of reasons. So we've, 
we've already said how the idea of the traditional working class, you know, does it really exist? And if it does, how do you actually represent them? Um, and how flagrant do you have to be with your messaging for them to feel recognised um, mm. as well? Particularly if someone's not politically engaged. Um, and as we said before, the reason for that, I mean, we, if we're speaking for me and you, I mean, I think a lot of it for us is based on, well, for me anyway, is based on his approach to Brexit and the EU. Um, I think he could have been a bit better, better with the way, the way he handled that. And I believe a lot of Remainers are politically homeless at the moment. They don't feel anyone's representing them. Like, I know a lot of people who are the same as me who don't feel really represented by any party right now. And if they did, they don't feel as though those parties could do anything meaningful anyway. Um, that contributes towards it. Well, it's the hornet's nest, isn't it? Because for me, Brexit is um, newsflash. It's a big issue. Um, <laughs> but um, effectively, if you're um, if you're in opposition, you're damned if you do and you're yeah. damned if you yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah, especially because, with Brexit. Well, that's it. Because because if if you criticise Brexit and say it was a huge mistake, mm. you um, you are effectively condescending to the majority of exactly. British people who voted for Brexit. But at the same time, um, if you don't call it for what it is yeah. which so far has been a pretty an unreserved failure <laughs> you know um a, a pretty it, it, it's been a, a a terrible idea um so far in my opinion and also that is backed up by the facts that you you know you, you've referred to before so it is such a difficult position for any opposition to be in to represent that that you know, I mean, we can't really call them remain votes anymore. You know, the rejoin vote yeah. or the undo votes. <laughs> but the issue as uh, well, don't you think, is if you think about it, I mean, part of what buried Corbyn was his approach towards Brexit as well, was like what he wanted to do confused a lot of people. I mean, for me, it was pretty straightforward. Um, but the fact that what he wanted to do wasn't popular is related to what we said before. I don't think there's any space for nuance anymore. You have to be really clear with your messaging and you need well, to be nailed on. I mean, I mean, Starmer couldn't really come out and say, look, um, Brexit, I mean, what's he going to say? Brexit was a good idea at the time to appease to the people who voted for it and then turn around and say, oh, but it's not going so well, so we need to go yeah. back and do this and then cheese off the people who voted for it in the first place. I mean, I don't even know what he could have said, really. Well, the, the the key word you've just mentioned there is is nuance because, from my perspective, if you look at Labour policy towards uh, Brexit, for instance, leading up to the twenty nineteen mm. general election, it was effectively uh, pursue uh, Brexit uh, on the agenda, mm. um, get a deal. Mm. If the deal works out worse than or a good deal worse than leaving then we would hold uh, another referendum mm. to vote for either remain or the deal um which from my it point actually of sounds view, pretty good <laughs> it, it sounds it sounds totally reasonable but at the same time yet another layer of confusion yeah. whereas for all of their perceived flaws in certain quarters at least the conservatives have been well, no, that that's not true either. They haven't been straight with anything either. Mm. I mean, um, even in the conservative circles, Theresa May's deal is still lambasted as being bad, despite yeah. it being better than yeah, the one yeah, we eventually got. Yeah, 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 much better than what we've got so, now. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's, it's just such a thorny issue, such a thorny issue. 
Um, so again, talking about uh, opposition reach, then um, in terms of speaking to the uh, the voting public, often people who might associate themselves with our political leaning. Mm. Um, I'm supposed to be centrist, but I've realised as we've got to talking, we occupy a very, very similar sort of centre-left mm. uh, position, which is fine. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, we, quite often I will have it thrown my way, whether it's communicating online on Twitter mm. or on Facebook or whatever. Um, you know, that the left is uh, condescending, it's sneering. Um, mm. You know, had a very entertaining conversation with someone um who was trying to insist to me that the word gammon was racist. Um, and again, the word gammon is, is particularly unhelpful you, when used sometimes, yeah. but, um, you know, we can all have a bit of fun online. But uh, <laughs> um, I, I just, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the perception that the liberal left woke crowd, the snowflakes, um, are we all just a bunch of insufferable and condescending prats who think we, because we do um, express more vocally our, our views on social issues, for instance, you know, um, are we just virtue signaling woke snowflakes? Um, <laughs> and do we talk down to anyone who, who doesn't share our worldview? Um, it's a mixed bag, actually, because I, I mean, I, I think I probably know some people who are those things who are sort of sneering slightly arrogant maybe talking down to people um it does happen i mean that happens in any walk of life doesn't it with any political background i think yeah um in my experience anyway but at the same time i think a lot of it actually comes from i mean it goes back to it again i mean people I think some people think that because they've been told to think it. I mean, it's just ridiculous the amount of times it's said in that, you know, in the House of Commons or political discourse, like woke, you know, you lefty woke activist lawyer. I mean, what the hell is that? Um, and we, I mean, these are like cabinet members saying this stuff. Um, and when when the words get out there and that they've used in, you know, an everyday language um to address people people are going to start believing it this becomes maybe becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy as well for some people and they start acting to it but i, I would say on the other hand i mean i'll have to be totally honest with you i think a lot of the time and you know maybe some people will find this sneering as well is i don't think those on the left necessarily talk down to people they're just supported by more facts and research and statistics um if you know the amount of conversations so I've had, sort of debating, pulling your pants yeah, down moment. Yeah, I mean the, the could, amount of debates I've yeah. had where I've just literally presented figures, statistics, peer-reviewed research, and like How look, look at all this stuff, and then straight away it's like, oh, you know, you condescending so and so. What is all this? No, mm. you know, and then you get, you know, the classic is, oh, you can't share research from that journal. It's from a university. All universities are lefty, yeah, lefty. Yeah havens of virtue signaling blah 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 and then you just get stuck in this cycle then and sometimes you have to find yourself dropping yourself to someone else's level and just being a little bit silly and that's probably why um maybe you use the word gammon once in a while Hector, I yeah i always i always i've i've I always use it with my tongue firmly in my cheek, but at the same time, because it's a, it's a word I have a strange relationship yeah. with because on the one hand, I do try and 
I think if I, if if at the end of the if, if the end of the conversation I've I've retained some sense of moral high ground, um, but sometimes if I think I'm tired and I want an amusing reaction, it's um, <laughs> it, it's a very easy one to reach for. So you know we're all human. Uh, exactly. Um, so I wanted to move on then a little bit and and see because obviously since we've last spoken, um, stories about uh, a particular redecoration of a particular um london facility um have have obviously grabbed headlines uh in in addition to sort of following on from the sort of green green seal conversation we've had in terms of um cronyism from david cameron and and um through rishi sunak and and um all that idea of um cronyism and and the in the most recent case, you've got um, suggestions that the prime minister has uh, personally reached out to Tory donors <laughs> to uh, pay for his expensive fixtures and fittings. Now, um, you know, multiple thousand pounds on mirrors, all that sort of thing. <laughs> a lot of people have had a lot of fun with the individual articles. So we'll, we'll steer away from that because it is funny. I mean, an, an owl shaped lamp. Sorry, can't help it. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, Keir Starmer used it as his main attack lines in Prime Minister's questions. Yeah, major sleaze. Last week and the week before. Yeah, major sleaze and, and Captain Hindsight. At it again. <laughs> Sounds like a, a, a Beano page. But, um, you know, so why didn't that, why hasn't that cut through? It appeared as though it was. Um, even some of the well-known um, arguably conservative mouthpieces, whether they be the uh, the Express or the Mail, uh, you know, even they were sort of not necessarily commenting in the in the most positive light. So, why hasn't this had seemingly any effect at all on um, on election results? I mean, the Conservatives have gained a, a huge number of councils. Uh, I think they've gained five uh, councils overall control, um, four of which from the Labour Party. This is as we're recording at uh, about half past eight on Friday night. Four of which from the Labour Party, and one that they didn't. Pre- there was no sort of um, definite control by any one party before. Uh, why hasn't any of that cut through? They've still performed remarkably well. Um, I think some of the factors we've discussed before obviously contribute, but move, on, on top, in terms of the Slee stuff that we've just been speaking about and this renovation and Starmer's attack line and why it hadn't, hasn't worked, is because I don't think the consequences have been seen yet. We need to wait for the... There's a few things, you know, there's a few sort of people and bodies looking into this. I think there's about four investigations at the moment, maybe five. Um, I, th- I thought it was six actually. Oh, was it six? Um, t- t- yeah, because I think we've still got um, we've still got um, reports of reports into reports that we've already had the oh, findings dear. of. So, but um, I think I think you're probably right in, t- yeah. in real terms. We're probably yeah. on about four. And, and I think uh, and uh, and genuinely, I think a part of this is because the consequences haven't been seen yet. I think the general public aren't aware of how much of a how much of a misdemeanor this is because the consequences haven't been seen. I mean, the Electoral Commission can actually get the police involved. Um, they can they can use that power. Um, yeah. And I'd suggest they probably will, um, based on what we know so far. Uh, I think a lot of it is down to the fact that everybody knows that Boris Johnson is a serial sleaze and a habitual liar and a relentless rule breaker. But people love him. He's a lovable rogue, isn't he? I think people, yeah. I think people who like Boris Johnson know that he is that sort of person, but they still find him relatable in a way. 
and then I guess it, it, it raises two questions. It, I mean, the first question it raises is, a lot of the time when people look at people in power and authority, they they wonder if they can see themselves in that person, or do they see general society reflected in that? Maybe it raises question on how society generally accepts things like nepotism, or how it generally accepts things like, you know, in the workplace, someone putting a good sort of word in for you, or referral schemes in the workplace like it's it's there's been research out there talking about you know would you you know if you had the chance to get your child a better place in school if you knew the person like questionnaires and things like that people generally will do whatever they can to get somewhere and get what they want um and if they see that reflected in the prime minister who they see as relatable anyway you know he's got his flaws you know he's relatable despite the fact he's got some famously awful opinions um in, in some of his previous commentary um that's that's the other issue that 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 raises and also on the other side is what makes this it's not the it's not the wallpaper or the flat renovation itself is the issue it's where it fits in with everything else which is the problem it's like sleaze baguettes sleaze you know it's got i mean yeah generic you had the ppe the vip lane lanes greensill dyson which we didn't mention yeah. akuri um, you know, he's he's building up quite the list, um, and it's 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 contempt for the rules. Yeah, but um, that's the thing. Are we becoming immune to it? Is that the problem? Well, I think because one major issue that uh, many sort of commentators I've heard, uh, including sort of those in support of the prime minister, but also neutral commentators, saying, "Look, this story for whatever reason hasn't." resonated with with the voters purely because it's not taxpayers money now I, as far as i'm concerned when you're in a position of privilege a position of public office um there are rules there to protect um uh, what's the word to protect integrity the, or something? the okay. integrity that's yeah. exactly the word i'm after protect the integrity of the office um and and it strikes me that it's the seriousness of this is not that public money mm. has been wasted or spent mm. or whatever. Mm. It's it, it it's that we've got someone setting an example yep. uh, at the very top of society. I mean, there aren't many more powerful people than the prime, the mm. office of prime minister in mm. the country, um, setting the example that the rules just don't matter. Mm. Uh, and 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 where is society without rules um you know the point is that we it's government i mean government you know government government the 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 function of government is to create rules so if the leader of said government doesn't follow the rules then what's the point in the government created so it's, it's an absolute it's an assault on the integrity of 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 government which yeah. you know is really concerning so um i saw something as well deepak on on uh what's the what's the connection between boris johnson's brother joe johnson and oh he got, got a directorship at dyson right. and, <laughs> and how long is how long has he held that for um know? i think that was i think that was just a few i think was it a couple of months before the text messages i think i think it was before the texts as far as I can okay. remember, when I looked at it. So, when um, the text messages were exchanged between, so this is between the Prime Minister and James mm. Dyson, 
with James Dyson uh, perhaps nudging the Prime Minister towards a line where there might be preferential tax arrangements for Dyson staff uh, moving from Singapore, yep. where he's moved his operations post-Brexit uh, to. Um, so, Well, here we go. I've got the data. He was appointed on 18th of February 2020. So, yeah, that would have been before the messages, okay. just before, actually. Right, OK. So, all of a sudden... Boris Johnson's keenness to work with an a, an, an organisation uh, that has no previous no experience. experience with the production of ventilators, all of a sudden that looks uh, a heck of a lot more suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Fine. Well, I mean, obviously this is all uh, subject to... I'm, I gosh, we you know hoping there's going to be some clarity and some explanation mm. because we haven't had any volunteered by the prime minister, mm. so obviously can't necessarily comment to any great degree without necessarily finding ourselves foul of some kind of <laughs> speech law. So mm. we'll 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 move on from that. Yeah. then. Um, I mean the the other thing I was going to mention as well, which yeah go is all it. part of this as well it's what they do with people who are supposed to be the i don't know the arbiters or the people who keep an eye on this stuff um you got the they have a, there's the register of ministerial ministerial interest or ministers interests um yeah. it's what i think it's six months overdue at the moment um six months overdue and counting so it, it makes you think like how many tory fingers are in these sort of rancid pies i don't know um because they haven't released it that is shocking and then that also adds to the fact that um the role that it was what was it again do you remember the what was the role the person who um uh, was involved in the inquiry for Priti patel who oh, swore so at... you're talking about sir alex allen who yeah. was the what was his role again so he is the government's independent advisor on the ministerial code yeah so he's obviously resigned. It took ages for them to fill the post. They've just filled the post, but I believe Lord Guy the Yes, so the the, the new guy, but the position <laughs> They've changed is, the ro- the nature of the role. <laughs> exactly. So effectively the um discretion is remains with the Prime Minister yeah. as to the findings of any observation. Into him now. of of uh, yeah, exactly. So the effectively um it's my ball, so you can come and play with it. But you know, if I don't like it I can take it home. Um so yeah, I mean it's a really, really important point. But this is another thing that. as well we haven't pointed out. The Electoral Commission are now getting involved, but for a long time now the Tories have been trying to get rid of that. Um mm. And so they've just swooped in just at the right time. And like I've said before, they've act- cause there is a law on political donations that the Electoral Commission can draw upon. So they can actually get the police involved. They can check if people have been deleting messages off phones. They can get audit trails and emails. And I think this is another thing as well, which differentiates this um, example of sleaze from the other things. This will have a definite audit trail somewhere. There will be receipts yeah. for this stuff. Um, which he can be caught on. Um, and another key thing which you may have noticed is that number 10 is not denying any of this stuff. There's been no denial at all. And they've been so quick over the last year or so to jump out and deny things. And they're not denying this, which which all I can assume is, you know, it can only mean one of two things. Either, you know, Johnson's doing his normal things like the rules don't apply to me, 
or that the what we think has been donated to him, which is what fifty eight thousand from Lord Brownlow. That's the suggestion by the leaked email from the Daily Mail or whatever it was. Um, the only suggestion could be that it's a lot more than that. There's a chance yeah. that it could be a lot more than that fifty eight thousand. Well, we've we've heard figures uh, ranging from ninety thousand to two hundred thousand. That's the sort of wow. range of the figures. Um, two hundred thousand, and it's, it's pretty widely reported that top figure. Yeah. Um, we started looking at because um, it was fifty eight thousand plus the thirty thousand mm. in the allowance in the mm. annual allowance. So that took us to eighty eight thousand. So that's the ninety thousand figure. But the suggestion is that the um, the the top up amount has has brought the total spend to uh, uh, well just shy of a quarter of a million quid on on um, some furniture for a private residence. It's ridiculous. I, I think it's excusable when um, when you start looking at public spaces, um, mm. places where you might have foreign dig- dignitaries, mm. um, where you might have a little more. Uh, practical and uh, sort of national use of the space yeah. um, where it where it looks rather odd is 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 in a effectively what is a private rented flat yeah. because albeit the flat comes with the job it's it's, it's not the property of um, thanks to um, first prime minister what was his name Robert Walpole <laughs> um, offered a house by the king uh, to form his government he said no I don't want a house. I'm happy where I am, but there should be the purchasing of a property for anyone who holds this role in mm. future. Um, so, so ever ever since then, that's where that's where they've been. And uh, might not even be Robert Walpole. Probably later, but it doesn't matter. I mean, um, I was going to mention as well. Like, sorry to jump in there, but you know, you mentioned the it. integrity thing. Mm. Um, the biggest issue that one thing we haven't uh, mentioned is, apart from the money itself which is part of the next point we're going to make anyway, is the fact that he will be in someone's pocket. He will owe someone something, and he's the Prime Minister. Um, I mean, for someone in his position of power, is he doing the right thing to put himself in that position where he owes someone? Yeah, that's an angle I hadn't thought about before. It's certainly not been reported from that angle. Mm. Um, what is in it for Brownlow? Yeah, exactly. You know what's Brownlow going to get out of it? Is is does does he have a, um, a you know a, a sort of sweatshop that produces thongs that are going to turn you know turn into, <laughs> into masks. turn into face masks? <laughs> you know what what exactly? I mean, the one one I was well, going to mention as well is the um, parliamentary commissioner for standards, um, Kathy Stone. I think and I think she's one of the people one of the six that you mentioned doing the investigation. So we mentioned yeah. the electoral commission who can get the police involved. But the other one is what she can do, she can recommend in her role, she can recommend that the Commons suspends Johnson. But they can use the majority they've got to frustrate him as much as possible. But then what happens then, if they did that, how would that reflect on the Conservative Party and how would the backbenchers respond to that? If they were asked to frustrate that process and not take her advice on board that he needs to be suspended... That would switch that party from a party that always thinks it stands for, like, law and order, traditional morality or whatever, into being this, like, sort of baked-in privilege and sleaze and, like, you know, do you know what I mean? I mean, it's just a bit... Well, I mean, look at, I mean, it's it's a sidetrack, but look at the situation in the Republican Party in the US right mm. now. Mm. How many 
Republicans oh, yeah. who previously voted their opposite, uh, voiced their opposition to the suggestion that it was voter fraud, realizing that Trump <laughs> is probably their most likely ticket back into presidency in yeah. three years' time. So, I mean, it's not beyond the realms of possibility mm. that if if Boris Johnson is this election winning king, um, and it, say what you like about the chap he wins elections yeah um and you know if if they do feel like if they do feel like um he's their best ticket then can you rely on the as you mentioned before the arbiters and the functions of government to pull through mm. against mm. against that level of cronyism and mm. that level of support i mean i just i had a a daydream earlier and I was thinking about the potential of um, my dream parliamentary scenario where Rory Stewart had won the um, <laughs> Tory leadership race mm. and um, he was up against Lisa Nandy as the mm. leader of the opposition. I yeah. just thought, wouldn't that be a, yeah. um, a fantastically dull but uh, nuanced and <laughs> a sort of... Fun- <laughs> it, I mean, it, would almost, it would have, It would almost function. But, you know, it's like the... Um, in bullseye where they pull the speedboat out the back and say here's what you could have won unfortunately <laughs> not not for us said. today yeah. <laughs> there's one person we haven't mentioned the hector as well in all this is dominic cummings and the role he played in starting this all off because it all came from his little blog yeah. didn't it this and yeah. then it's, i think it sort of escalated from that point so uh yeah he's put himself in an interesting position now well, I was thinking about this the other day as well. I was thinking, you know, that you've got the principle of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah, that's literally but that. <laughs> the idea of being oh, friends with that weirdo. Horrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No thanks. No thanks at all. Um, okay. it's, it's, it's interesting, though, because it means, you know, it was he was his most senior aide for, like, what, a year and a half? So he knows he knows the workings of Boris Johnson. He's got more information on him than anyone, well... That a lot of people to expose him, uh, and he says he's got records as well to back up his allegations potentially, and he's being yeah. quiet now because he he's got a committee in a in a couple of weeks, and he said he's not going to say anything until he lets it all out there. So that's going to be oh, explosive. He's such a little show. He loves pony, it, doesn't he? He loves the yeah. attention. That's all it is. He loves Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I bet he chose the rose garden for that non-apology <laughs> yeah, oh, as well. Definitely. Just does. for the drama. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Oh well, okay. Well, um, let, I mean, we could go on about that for hours, but um, I, th- I think effectively uh, the Conservatives have a a very effective hold mm. on 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 public hearts and minds at the moment, and there's all sorts of reasons why, and and all sorts of things that you know we, we sort of are concerned by. So <laughs> let's leave it there before we get too depressed. In a normal week of news, now I feel like I've said that a million times over the last couple of years as, as a sort of page four, page five, page six story as opposed to front page, which it normally would be. We've had the news this week that Gavin Williamson has cut the budget for university spending in the arts or non-priority subjects. Um, so subjects like English, drama, um, music and, and all sorts of other artistic uh, sort of cultural pursuits um, have been cut from around 36 billion, uh, sorry, 36 million pounds a year to 
to to in the teens. I think it's about eighteen or nineteen. So, um, a pretty much a fifty percent cut to those subjects in order to, um, and I'm I'm sort of air quoting, but it's not a direct quote. In order to focus spending on um, you know key strategic subjects, so things like producing uh, more uh, start more trained staff for things like the NHS and and um, the, the sort of logistics and 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 that sort of stuff. So. Deepak, a lot of people who are on the kind of traditional left see this as um, an assault on the on on any people sort of from lower and middle income families who might want to go and study um, something artistic or, or some, something you know more along the cultural lines rather than practical or or indeed vocational um what's i mean you're probably best place to answer this so i'll shut up um you know you're a, you're you're a, a a university lecturer so you know what 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 do you think no i agree um and it's the sad thing is it was not not a surprise i mean i i i get regular emails from like uk ri and different places getting the funding cut. I mean, I mentioned in the podcast... Sorry, um, weeks, UK, all right? The research, research and innovation. Um, okay. Government body looking into that. So they, you know, they, I think, halved their funding as well a couple of weeks ago. You remember we were talking about um, Trident and everything. And then yeah, I was talking about the money's going on that, but they can't afford to, you know, keep up with the other things that they, you know, should be really putting their money into. It all fits into that wider picture of pulling funding from anything which doesn't I don't know which doesn't fit into their traditional notion of what employment is for certain demographics that they think should fall into categories and stuff I mean I've they they what's the word for I don't know elitify is not a word is it I mean they, they just <laughs> there's a lot of elitism involved in this and there's it's cordoning off I think it's ring fencing a certain industry to be only accessible for certain people in society, which is really scary. Yeah. Um, and if you if you think about this alongside the impact of Brexit on the creative industry, as well as, um, as well as the impact of the pandemic on the creative industry, it's it's a triple whammy and it's a horrible one. I mean, I know people personally, people who teach in those areas who are just aghast at what's happening. Because it all fits in the wider picture of them just not caring. I mean, the creative industry contributes, what, more than $100 billion? Um, It's our biggest export outside financial services. And a lot, of, yeah. a lot is said about financial services, but not a lot is said about the creative sector. Um, yeah. And it's really taken a hit. Now, the recovery fund that's been set up for that is what? I think it's just over a billion. And when you consider it contributes $111 billion a year, um, it's not enough. So when this news came out, the first thing I'll say is it didn't surprise me, which is really sad. And it and it makes me sad that I can say that. It makes me sad that I can say a 50% cut in that funding doesn't surprise me. Um, and it's just pulling away the ladder underneath people who really need a ladder right now. I mean, if you think of where we are with the impact of Brexit and the pandemic, and you also, I mean, I'll use the other example. I don't know if you've seen the example of the Erasmus scheme being replaced by the Turing scheme. Yeah. That is nothing like the Erasmus scheme. It's nothing like it. You get, it's less money, it's less money a month. Um, it's to countries that people probably 
would struggle to afford the flights to, maybe the living costs uh, aren't okay, contributing well, I, to the same. I tell you, just, just to stick a pin in that, purely because um, I've heard the Erasmus scheme being mentioned, and mm. almost always when it's mentioned in the House of Commons, um, you know, there'll be an interjection from the Tory side of the House saying the much better Turing scheme, the much better Turing wow. scheme. What, what, so you mentioned before about um, less money. You mentioned before about um, slightly less practical destinations. What what are we talking? What's, well, what's okay, the first difference? of all, there's no tuition fee waiver. So there's no waiver for tuition fees. That's the first. There's no support. There's okay. no travel support. So if you're a disadvantaged student, there's no special travel support for you like there would be under Erasmus. There's The living cost support is less than Erasmus as well. Okay. Um, I can try and pull up the exact figures for you because I did the actual... Um, I had some paperwork on this. Yeah, so there we go. Here's the first one. The Turing okay. scheme, first of all, the funding won't be reciprocal. So it means the international partner we're dealing with won't be supported for any exchanges. Okay. So the Erasmus scheme would actually provide support to the actual hosting partner as well. I mean, the Turing scheme, that doesn't exist. Also, the Turing scheme doesn't pay the tuition fees for studying at the international par partners. It gives you like a, an allowance which doesn't actually cover the fees itself. With Erasmus, they covered the fees as well as giving you a monthly allowance. Right, okay. Um, and on top of that, it's the number of people that can be supported. The Turing scheme has only got enough funding um, to support a lot less students than the Erasmus scheme did. It's a £100 million scheme, um, so that's 35,000 places. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a House of Lords EU committee on this that said the benefits of the Erasmus programme would not be... We, you would not be able to replicate the Erasmus programme with the national programme that the government was planning. So when they started planning the Turing scheme, there was actually a House of Lords committee which said it wasn't going to work. And also the impact on disadvantaged students, simply because they're not paying the travel costs and they're not paying for the tuition fees, means that the only people who can really access the Turing scheme are people who've got a loan from the bank of mum and dad, essentially, that can actually cover the rest of the costs. What this net result is is, I mean, we've talked before about win-win policies for the um, for the Conservatives. So policies like the cutting of the foreign aid and international development budgets, um, you know, that's very popular because not only are we um, so is the government seen as making a, a prudent financial decision, it's also sticking one to Johnny Foreigner as well. Huh. In the same way as this one. Um, you know this this cut it's it's making a significant sort of 20 million pound saving annually uh, yeah. but it's also sticking it to the woke lefties um, yep. which again you know we talk about words like base uh, i never used to oh, no. hear the word base <laughs> in terms of the you know that there and it it again it sounds condescending because base on itself you know by mm. itself obviously means the bottom but um <laughs> the the conservative base uh, and it, it it appreciates um the the sort of conservative voting base that you know likes um or uh, appreciates sticking it to johnny foreigner or, mm. or um uh perhaps but how hitting, sad is that hitting though hitting the wokies back but well, how sad is that that is so sad isn't it well, it's just votes for fewer options for their own children. Yeah, um, it's sad. One thing I did want to say was uh, I heard a, an interview with Richard Osman. Mm. So um, the mm. tall man with the glasses and the laptop on Pointless, also yeah. House of Games, also best-selling author. But um, listening to him talk about 
his experience as effectively a, a sort of borderline working class to middle class mm. kid, but certainly not private school kid. Um, I mean, effectively a working class kid who was a bit of a chancer. He applied for Cambridge because he thought it'd be good, ended up going there, surrounded by toffs, went to work in television because he'd been watching television, listening to him talk about his passion for television. It's so... Mm. It's it's amazing listening to him talk about it as um, you know as as an art form um, you know entertainment television. But he describes his earlier experiences in TV as as very much being an old boys club, mm. um, very much a public school domain. He sort of as as his career progressed, he saw um, a, a movement to a more inclusive, a more egalitarian environment whereby the people with the best ideas and the best work ethic mm. tended to rise to the top whereas yeah, before be nice. yeah well before before it had been more you know so the suggestion is on the basis of i mean naturally people who end up working in tv and in media are likely to have studied arts at university yep, and correct. and and this is making those pursuits less um less available less accessible mm. to mm. to again I, I dislike the 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 expression but less available to the working class or to mm. people who might be um from a a, a more, more disadvantaged background yeah. which means uh ultimately poorer standards of diversity and poorer standards of content output and as you said from a business point of view this makes no sense being mm. our second largest um mm. industry export yeah but that, export at the same industry. time then i mean you've mentioned before about sticking it to the lefties or the, or the woke mob yeah um despite the fact that the contribution is only second to financial services um don't you think this is another example of the culture war you spoke of? So if, if they, you know, if you look at the exact words they used, they said that performing arts, art and design, media studies, archaeology, all the subjects that fit under this banner are no longer part of their strategic mission. That That's mm. the word they actually used. Um, not among its strategic priorities, apparently. Yeah is, yeah. is this an example of just that woke war then so they can control this industry and... You know, I mean, if you combine combine it with you know the people they're removing from the boards for museums and what they're doing with the national trust, I mean, where does this all fit in? Yeah, I I definitely think it's um, I definitely think it's related. Uh, I think that um, I mean, it even even adding it to Oliver Dowden's suppositions around um, the importance of flags on every single oh, public building, you know, um, I think that. You're dead right to draw those links. I think also looking at, uh, I think it was Gavin Williamson who installed um, some free speech agents into all <laughs> universities just to make sure the Wokies know their place. Well, if you combine uh, that with the fact that they're fighting desperately against the decolonization, decolonization of the curriculum at the moment, yeah. uh, which they're totally against, um, it's not a good look. Yeah, well, it's... It, it's, it's there are those, and a guy, um, bless him again, um, not with us to defend this position, but um, I know that he is sceptical of the existence of a culture war. Culture not dismissive, war. but sceptical. Yeah. Um, but I think 
I, I mean, Christ, this is one moment. I always wish Guy were here because he's always brilliant. But this is this, this is, is one moment, moment where I'd really, really appreciate his input, actually, mm. just because, you know... I'd love to know what he thinks about this. Yeah, because because obviously you and I, I, th- I think it's, it's as clear as day that we've mm. got a government that is hell-bent on consolidating power mm. um, by, by effectively... Yeah sort of turning off the conveyor belt of potential opposition Mm. Um, Mm. which you know it's not to say that everyone who studies um, art or or drama or music is Mm. is going to become a left-leaning government Mm. critic Mm. but you know the the, the sort of socio-demographic sort of stats would, would indicate a leaning that way so yeah combined with the idea that the government can effectively accuse you of of um, being unpatriotic for questioning government decisions rather than um you know i i think to to oppose the government is as patriotic as it is to support the government it's all about the national interest ultimately but um you know they're doing a really good job of of um hijacking what national interest is as well but no i i think worrying signs and all the more worrying that i haven't seen it on the front page of any paper i haven't seen this story Uh, i had to dig deep in a particularly bored moment on the bbc website to see this quite far down the home page it's bad and that says a lot itself well and and even looking at the bbc and recent appointments um cancelling of the mash report again you know uh as much as i enjoy have i got news for you um it it it, it was i find it a little bit blunt in terms of satirical output and a little bit formulaic whereas i found that the mash report it was a little bit naughty it had teeth yeah it was a nice format um, and i yeah. I, I mean i enjoyed jeff norcott on mash report for instance mm. who mm. is um you know, uh, you know, he'd say it himself. He's 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 the one right wing comedian. <laughs> yeah, exactly, but, exactly. You know, the one. It, and I I feel like um, it's it's getting to a point now where you you can't deny that something sinister is is afoot, mm. and and uh, mm. it sounds a little bit. I always feel bad sort of trying to suggest that there might be something sinister afoot. Cause it sounds like I've got a a tinfoil <laughs> hat on, but. Uh, you know, I can only, you know, we can only react to the evidence of our mm. eyes and ears. Um, and yep. it, it's it's very worrying. So, how scared are you? I don't know, you know, because, I mean, we we talked a little bit before about what can happen in terms of, uh, in terms of writing the ship, in terms of, I mean mentioned before about my concerns around the electoral system and, and how uh, and ha- how parties can have much less than half of the popular vote and yet enjoy a, a massive majority. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, the, you know, your point, which is exactly right about who governs the governors, who's policing the governors mm-hmm. uh, or the, the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the governors of our country. So, you know, talking about the arbiters in those situations, I think that uh media in terms of print media uh you know that's always been free and at the beck and call of billionaire owners um so you know that that's always been a a case of effectively you you win 
the uh, you win elections with the support of Rupert Murdoch. Um, Blair won the support oh. of Rupert Murdoch with. Um, uh, I think he attended yep. a conference somewhere, somewhere hot. I remember hot and sunny before the, before the ninety seven election, and and all of a sudden he won three times, and then, uh, and then Murdoch yep. moved away from Brown because Brown was too um, too left leaning, and and too back lefty. back again we are. So, uh, combining the sort of cultural steps that have been taken by this government in terms of limiting opposition uh both in terms of the bbc yeah. and in terms of um you know the the sort of culture war around flags around patriotism around you know criticism of this government is tantamount to criticism of this country criticism of this country's past is um criticism of this country now um you know and and the attacks on you know the pulling up of ladders on uh, people from the from diverse backgrounds to uh, pursue interests and um, you know mm. pursuit, pursuits that may p- perhaps be above their station. You know, is it stay in your lane politics? Mm. Um, I can't remember who it was, but I I, I a, a quote that sort of really stuck with me was. The government at the moment wants to educate people enough to be useful, but not enough to challenge it. Yeah, and it it it's, it's it's, it strikes me that you know that strategic mission um, mm. is uh, code for enough to be useful, but not enough to challenge. Mm. And mm. I just I think it's I think Facebook is a big contributor as well. Um, I th- yep. I think that Facebook has a lot to answer for a lot of false news talking about vox pops before about um the uh hartlepool voter who spoke to i think it was lbc's political reporter up in the northeast but um saying that the um mr williams the uh the the labor candidate was the candidate that was against the hartlepool hospital um despite him having actually worked in on the front lines throughout the pandemic and whilst campaigning um and yet the guy referenced facebook as his source for that information that this guy was somehow anti the hartlepool hospital so the total abandonment of fact and reason now don't get me wrong just because the guy voted conservative that doesn't make him a bad person and just because he's misinformed on that one area it doesn't make him stupid but the fact yeah. is that false news there wasn't that uh i don't think there was that vehicle for false news before facebook and twitter yeah. turned up and i think yeah. that false news is is one huge obstacle to reason and um ultimately accountability i mean wasn't there a piece there was a bit of research on that wasn't there there was like a content analysis about the Tories in 2019, they literally used record amounts of disinformation and misinformation in the campaign. Like they actually went through and sifted through all the advertising they did. And the percentage of stuff that was just outright lies was outrageous, actually, yeah. compared to the other parties. It was the chalk and cheese. I think for the Labour Party it was around 10% or less than 10. Uh, and the Tories were very high. I can't remember what the figure was now, but I remember them releasing a piece of research on it and how can we forget the tory famous twitter fact checker do you yeah, remember that yeah, when they pretended to be a fact checking website was the handle but yeah, yeah do you remember that I do. absolutely fact mad. Check UK. yeah yeah unbelievable yeah. no 
totally totally underhand um uh it, yes so to answer your question that you asked me a long time ago yes i am worried and um mm. i think that everyone else should be too because even people mm. who support this tory government now mm. um mm. I mean, we've we've both made it clear. We both feel like the vast majority of people have voted for Brexit, have voted against their better interests and against the national mm. interest. But leaving Brexit aside, there'll be issues in the future that people will be misinformed and manipulated on the back of. Mm. And uh, be, be, because of the not having challenged it now, uh, those, mm. you know, that we, we're all, we'll all fall victim to it. And I think... It's it's a very concerning time that a government, as you mentioned right at the top of the show, a government can perform quite so poorly and yet enjoy quite such brilliant yeah. local election and by-election results. Mm. Um, they're not all in yet, but it appears to be an almost whitewash. Um, Labour losing four councils around the country and uh, Conservatives winning five as it stands, winning a by-election it looks like a lot of the mm. not many police commissioner reports are back, um, reports results are back mm. in yet but um, mm. also early polling, early sort of results looking a good deal like uh, a, a, a lot more um, a lot more blue coppers um, so <laughs> Did you uh, did you see the latest just before we started the pod though about um, apparently in London there's a few people thinking Bailey's got a shot. No, no, I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah, there was there's a few murmurings from the Tories that he's in with a shot. Well, now. he was polling a long way behind all week. Um, I mean, yeah. as uh, in terms of um, in terms of Sean Bailey's um, campaign. Uh, it wasn't. Do you remember Zach Goldsmith's campaign, and how yeah, divisive yeah. and how horrible that was? Um, yeah, yeah. Sean Bailey is obviously. He's pursued a line that has been very critical of Sadiq Khan on points that have actually yeah. been within the government's remit. Um, so, yeah. and, and I, even though I'm in a, a bit of a sort of woke lefty um, echo chamber yeah. in my <laughs> social media, um, I do occasionally come across. Um, little bits of turning point propaganda. Um, oh dear. But, you know, just to name but one. Um, but, you know, sort of levelling issues like knife crime directly at the feet of um, Sadiq Khan, mm. issues like rape in London, directly at the feet mm. of Sadiq Khan. But those are the lines that work, aren't they? absolutely mad. Because I can... Um, mm. I can. I've. I've got a cof- coffee here next to me. I can tip it on the floor. It's not your fault, Deepak. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And yeah, and I. And I, I can just say, Deepak, there's coffee on my floor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Why did you do that? <laughs> no, because I'm moving out soon, and I don't want to pay someone to clean it. Because um, I can't do it myself. I'm useless. That sort of thing. Um, but yeah, really, really, just. Well, I think um, I mentioned to you before, the topics we're going to talk about today have changed a great deal as a result of quite such yeah. a good day for the um, for the Conservative Party. And, and yeah. no, I, I think just to kind of round us off, I mean, I'll throw your question back at you. Are you worried? Yeah, yeah. I was... I mean, I saw the signs of this um, as soon as this whole 
before it became popular for members of the cabinet to start saying things like woke and then Priti Patel was warned about her language um, because of the potential the divisive language and the potential ramifications for people in the legal profession that people actually being physically assaulted um, because of the use of that sort of language and then that language used in the um, assaults basically um, and then she ignored that she ignored the request not to do it and then she did it again on Twitter and then she did it again at a conference and then Boris Johnson did it and then I'm thinking you've just been told not to do it um, so your desperation to set up this culture war goes beyond anything even putting you know even people you're putting people in danger from physical assault and you're happy to just take that on the chin and do that as part of your populist campaign um and then from then on it's got worse we've got the stuff about the national trust we've had the stuff about um oh rule britannia oh dear what else do we have although there was nothing really going yeah, how, on with how that. dare the national we had trust the flag tell... stuff on the bbc yeah. we had the flag stuff how dare you nagamanchetti have a laugh at the size of someone's yeah, flag yeah. You know, we've got the stuff about museum boards now. We've got the funding cuts to the research, funding cuts to um, creative industry, well, the creative um, fund at universities, the lack of recovery fund for the creative sector. It all fits into a, you know, a, a picture that's not very nice at the moment. I am scared. I mean, I, I mean, how far can we go before people start questioning it properly? Um, and who's going to question it? I don't know. I, I guess uh, us at the moment, yeah, we us. can. Rationality. We can go to the rescue. Absolutely, and and also um, shout out to uh, a relatively new publication. Have you come across Byline Times? Oh, I oh, think, I it's, think great. it's fantastic. I think yeah, it's great. Yeah. So yeah, free plug for our ten listeners to go and check out the Byline yeah, Times yeah. website. Um, Probably worth a subscription as well. I know they have a subscription service. It's probably worth it. I'm looking into that myself. Yeah, well, it's 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 um, effectively because um, GB News, for example, saw that there was yeah. not enough uh, support, <laughs> effectively, for for <laughs> this populist um, uh, and and slightly anti-truth uh, agenda. So they've decided to start it. Yeah. But um, you know where where you and I might agree, Deepak, maybe less so, Guy. Um, yeah. There is a slight lack of um, honest good what i would say is good faith reporting reporting no, exactly yeah, reporting as should be i think um, the financial times has been wonderful um, a wonderful refuge oh yeah it's been great and, over the yeah and yeah. um i'm still proud to say uh, i'm a a, a a proud reader of, of of bbc news output as well um yeah. i think i think yeah. that some of the longer form uh journalism is absolutely fantastic i just think as you said at the at the top of the show i think i think the um temptation into slightly clickbaity he- headlines like um the the ones around the results today which kind of reinforce any <laughs> negative feeling around um around the uh, opposition to the government um slightly concerning well did you see laura kunzberg great piece the other day where she was going to talk about the relationship between Boris Johnson and the truth, and she failed to mention at any point any of his famous lies that either he's got sacked for or said in the House of Commons. I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah, no, I, I didn't see that. Do you know what? It's so funny. Um, yeah. I can say this because my mum doesn't listen to the show. So, uh, but yeah. my my <laughs> my mum. Why not? Oh, she's um, 
tell you what, she listened to the first one, thought it was great, and then um, said it was great. <laughs> said it off. was great, right. and then hasn't, hasn't really listened to any since. Sure. But um, she she has a, um, a a particular sort of antipathy towards um, Laura Koonsberg as a, as a bit of a, a Boris oh. Johnson mouthpiece. So, uh, oh. and I th- I think on occasion maybe she does. But I, I think um, I can't remember who it was who said it. I'm, I'm giving a lot of uncredited quotes here. But um, if the BBC is getting attacked from the right and attacked from the left, then maybe yeah, maybe it's doing a good, doing job. A good yeah, job. Yeah, no, so, absolutely. And I, and on balance, to be fair, if if um, Laura Koonsberg will definitely be listening. I am actually a big fan of her work. I just think she's in a really difficult position when covering Boris Johnson mm. um, because uh, ultimately she's the face he sees most often from the BBC. So there's going to be a bit of rapport there. Um, but yeah. perhaps the, I guess BBC just isn't the outlet for journalism with teeth yeah. um, because of its yeah. um, impartiality brief. Uh, it yeah. just strikes me as a bit of a shame that um, a news organization has to not report the truth because the truth is yeah, impar- yeah. is yeah. unimpartial. Shocking. So at the end of every single week, usually what we do is a final thought, but there's no guy, so we don't have any lovely stories about uh, the history of words or, 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 or goat farming in, uh, in Portugal or whatever his, said his, his name is related to. But um, uh, Deepak's decided he wants to tell me a joke and I can't wait. Um, okay, so what is the difference between a poorly dressed man on a tricycle and a well-dressed man on a bicycle. Oh, no, I don't know. Go on. A tyre. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is a good one. Oh, that's fun. That's cheered me up. Oh, right. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Um, so, top that. Hector. Top that. Okay. No, no, not even going to try. Um, what I will say as my final thought is mentioned it briefly before guy sadly not with us um he's he's, he's obviously doing his uh end of year's year exams at university so wanted to wish him all the best of luck and apologize if i've misspoken on his behalf tonight to us if you'd like to get in touch then please do uh, you can find me on twitter at at hector kidwell and you can fire in any questions you'd like us to answer or leave us any feedback thanks very much bye